0: Podcast, where financial research, policy, and practice meet. I am your host, Jonathan Ferguson. Our episodes contain interviews with researchers and discuss evidence-based strategies that policymakers and practitioners can implement to strengthen financial well-being for individuals at all stages of life. For this episode, I speak with Jill Hoyding to discuss Jill's research project, I Don't Like All of Those Fees, Pragmatism About Financial Services Among Low-Income Parents. Jill is a PhD student in the social welfare program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jill's research interests include affordability, accessibility and quality of childcare, prevention of expulsion in early education, quality and effectiveness of family support programming and systems and early childhood and family policy. Jill holds a Master of Social Work degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Georgia. Thanks for joining us today, Jill. So the first question for you is, what has been a financial aha moment in your life? And that can be something that you learn from someone, your own research or discover yourself.
1: I think this is a great question and a really good opportunity to reflect on my own experiences and how those have carried into the the research work that um, I've been doing. And I think back and I, throughout my life, there have been different points in time that different people have definitely given me little nuggets of information that I have ended up using. I remember being really young and my mom teaching me all about balancing a checkbook (laughs) which feels really irrelevant now, (laughs) given all of the technology that I'll talk to a little bit in terms of the research. But all the way through, even um, with my studies in undergrad, I um, took uh, studies in consumer sciences and had to take a couple of personal finance classes. And those pieces of information for sure have stuck with me. I think more recently, I've come to understand even more how much those external influences, and like you were saying, systems, um, have really influenced how I approach my own finances and what opportunities have been presented. Um, I think I rely heavily on my local credit union and that has so much to do with place and how much access I've had. And they happen to have this incredible mobile banking system that makes things so smooth and easy for me. I realize now that I spend very (laughs) little of my cognitive bandwidth Um, On some of these things because of what access they've provided. Um, So those are kind of the things that I've started to to reflect on and just think about uh, the financial ecology around me and how that really influences my choices that I have and the decisions I end up making based upon those options.
0: Well, thanks for that answer. And it's, it leans so much into what uh, your research uh, is grounded in. You did tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm hoping that you'll um, go on a little bit further and give us a little bit more about your, not, uh, not just your academic background, but the work that you're conducting.
1: In my undergrad studies, I focused on child and family development, as well as psychology, Um, And with those child and family development courses, that's where I got that little taste of consumer finance and personal finance. Um, And then I decided to go for my master's uh, right after. And I chose social work um, a lot for their focus on um, systems and policies, particularly at the University of Wisconsin, the School of Social Work there is very focused on, on these systemic issues. And so that really drew me in. Um, So I focused more on policy in my master's work and then went into the field and have about 10 years of experience with nonprofits, um, mostly working with um, other nonprofits um, and the work that they do then in their local communities. So again, having that systems uh, focus and that emphasis on how we influence policy. Um, so my the content area that I focused on for a long time was around early childhood and both um, in the early education settings and where children are are going into the community in different ways, whether that be in, in centers or Head Start or a more home-based uh, child care program, but also the things that influence families so much, what they have access to um, with the circumstances in which they live. Um, And so getting to have some real world practice and supporting um, those agencies like family resources, um, resource centers and childcare resource and referral agencies, those kinds of things. So um, with 10 years of experience in that, I saw a lot of what we knew and what we didn't know. And that encouraged me to come back to school (laughs) and start to focus on research and gain an understanding of of how to pursue some of the questions that we don't have answers to yet and uh, add to that knowledge. Um, So now I'm back with the School of Social Work again in their uh, PhD program for social welfare. Uh, And I'm studying early childhood in kind of a lot of different ways. And so one of those um, opportunities I've had drew me into this research around financial services.
0: What led you to complete this research specifically? (laughs)
1: To share that answer, I got to go back a little bit to um, some broader uh, context, and I want to share a little bit more about the baby's first year's study. And This is a a larger study that a team of uh, principal investigators have designed a randomized control trial to understand if reducing poverty um, changes children's developmental trajectories. And so this, um, this broader study is taking place in four different um, metropolitan areas. And mothers were recruited um, right after giving birth um, to their, their child um, while they were still in the hospital. And from there, the mothers who chose to participate were randomized into two groups. And so one group of mothers is receiving a high cash gift and it's $333 a month. So roughly around four thousand dollars a year that they receive, um, and the second group is the low cash gift group who receives about twenty dollars or receives twenty dollars a month, about two hundred forty dollars a year then. And these cash gifts continue um, through their child's um, for the first seventy-six months of their life, um, so covering most of early childhood, and they receive this cash uh, gift on a debit card. It's an unconditional cash gift. So once moms uh, chose to participate in the study, they don't have to do anything to continue accessing that money. They don't have to continue participation in the study. Um, they don't have to spend the money in certain ways. There really are no conditions um, that is with them from here on until those 76 months. Um, however, the, the design of the study does include um, some behavioral nudges, if you will, that um, kind of hint that the money is um, kind of linked with their their child. So like, for example, the money comes on the day of the month that their child was born. So say my birthday is June 11th, it would come on the 11th every month. And the card is designed in a way that says for my baby on the front. So there are a few things, while it's unconditional, that there's a connection to, to children, So this debit card um, can be used uh, for in-store purchases, online purchases, ATM withdrawals, cash advances via banks. So there's a number of different ways moms can use it. Um, And there's not a charge with purchases um, or withdrawals through a bank teller. And there's no charges for customer service or card replacement. But only monthly, um, the monthly gifts can be dispersed through the debit card. So it's not overloadable. in any way, shape, or form. Um, But that context I think is important in terms of these uh, thousand mothers who are participating in um, the baby's first year study. We then approach them um, a subsample to be part of a smaller qualitative study. And so this is kind of where, um, for me, the the personal motivation (laughs) um, for this study first, the fact that I got to participate really early on in this study. Um, around early childhood was just fascinating given my interest in the past and my work. So to be able to to participate has just been great from a a student perspective and learning all of (laughs) all of these things about research. And then particularly for the qualitative research you know this is where we hear mom's narratives directly Um, and getting to understand their voice the the meaning that they give. Um, to participating in the study what the money has meant for their families has just been a unique opportunity and a great experience to understand directly from them um, how they're they're experiencing this. So from there, (laughs) a little bit more than on the qualitative study itself, like I said, we then randomly selected Um, 80 mothers um, from the broader study to participate in this qualitative study. We narrowed down to two of the metropolitan areas for logistics, um, but we did make sure that we stratified our sampling so that we had equal numbers of moms receiving that high cash gift and that low cash gift, and that we made sure we had a representative sample of mothers who were first-time mothers to understand how their unique perspectives might come into play. And so, the the offerings that we get with the qualitative study like they just have so many unique benefits um that we can understand this nuance to the life experiences that mothers have we can learn things that are um, not always possible through other methods of data collection so like things you wouldn't be able to pick up in a survey we can start to understand our mother's own voices mechanisms behind certain changes, or the meaning that people give to different things. Those are all things that we can start to uncover um, with the qualitative work. So one of the things that my, um, the principal investigator for the qualitative studies, Sarah Helper Megan, um, she's with the School of Human Ecology in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies. Um, One thing that she and I started to find early on in our first wave of interviews I should mention that we do have ongoing qualitative uh, semi-structured interviews with moms almost about every year. And so early on um, in our interviews, we started to um, pick up that moms were talking about um, fintech. For any of those who don't know, we kind of think about fintech for our purposes as this like catch-all term that kind of includes mobile applications, uh, software, different technologies, that improve and automate those um, those elements of financial services, um, and particularly for us, we're looking from the consumer perspective around fintech. We start to hear moms um, mention fintech, and while we're definitely asking questions about their financial lives, um, asking you know how they access their paychecks, how they pay their bills, um, what their expenses look like overall, we didn't specifically ask about uh, fintech. We did ask about banks but not this newer kind of evolving um, component, And so this really struck um, stuck out for us and really got our attention. And so we approached um, a few other collaborators, Melody Harvey and Michael Collins from the Department of Consumer Sciences. Um, and that's kind of where we started to look into this matter of uh, mothers, like the financial ecology that surrounds them and the context in which they're making these decisions about um, about their finances, but also kind of what sets up the options that they have available. Um, and so that's kind of what motivated us to, to start looking at this specific, these specific research questions um, within the baby's first year's Mother's Voices qualitative study.
0: Well, that's certainly very comprehensive. Were there any uh, specific constraints or limitations on your research
1: I just do want to give a a major (laughs) thank you to the moms who have participated in the qualitative study. As you said, it's all about stories, and the fact that they were so open. So you know, with a lot of qualitative research, um, we're we're not trying to produce these generalizable conclusions, but rather we're really exploring exploring these nuances um, and experiences, the perceptions, and the meaning that mothers give. the their life circumstances. And so we um, those things are often hidden in the other elements of data collection, um, especially in terms of the quantitative surveys or some of the other types of collection that might be happening. And so we're able to just ask more and get that nuance. So we're looking at this variety of um, experiences rather than, you know, being able to really specifically um, look at particular phenomenon. So, so the first constraint is that um, we're not looking to produce these generalizable conclusions, um, but we're exploring the nuances across mother's experiences. Um, also, we do have the um, advantage of looking across two waves of interviews. So the first one was when our the focal children in this study were about one years old, and then again, when they were about two years old. Um, But, you know, things can still change beyond that. So we are still capturing a specific point in time um, within mother's lives and the kind of uh, financial decisions they're making at that point in time. Um, And then lastly, um, you know, we some of the pieces that we look at in the study, like experiences with banks, we did ask more explicitly about experiences there. But other things we didn't like fintech services, and so that um, really came out more spontaneously from mothers. Um, so with that, though, we we don't have an exact count like of how many mothers um, were using these fintech services. So we're we're probably um, under capturing or under counting mothers' experiences with these types of products from our data. Um, so there are some limitations there. Um, It's really great to know because it was spontaneous. It gives us a a new glimpse of something we didn't necessarily know about mothers' lives. But again, there's that limitation.
0: With all research, there'll be some limitations, some constraints, but your research was able to find some, I would say, some meaningful things. Uh, So would you be able to tell us about that, uh, specifically what your research findings were?
1: Yes, We find that four prominent factors shaped mothers use of financial services and products. First, their perceptions of and experiences with banks. Second, their perceptions of and experiences with fintech services and products. Also their employers choices about how um, they pay employees. And then lastly, the modalities required to pay bills as well as those that mothers found most convenient and those that they found to be most safe. about three-fourths of the mothers in our study were banked at one point in time during the two waves of interviews. We do learn that mothers have a pretty big sense of mistrust um, in banks from their either past experiences or their perceptions, things they've heard or learned from others too. So one mother, um, Stephanie, As we spoke to her, she told us that she knows well these ins and outs of banks and having previously worked at a national branch for a bank, she still felt ripped off by bank overdraft charges because she saw some of their accounting practices really putting her at a disadvantage as being like in that consumer role. And so she tells us, so it's like you have the money in the bank, you see it, you buy something or you make a transaction, you see the amount that's been taken out of the bank, you know it's simple mathematics. You know you see it's been taken out, deducted from the balance you have, you know what you have left over, you take care of your things. And then all of a sudden, bam, $15 fee. I don't like the way that stuff works. I think it's a big scam to be honest. And I'd rather if I'm already poor, I'm not going to continue paying $35 fees on top of that. I'll just manage the home money outside of the bank for now. And if I needed to do something, like I'll use my PayPal account or I'll get a reusable debit card or reloadable one. So after ending up with that negative balance, Stephanie had closed her account and turned to those alternative services and products that she described instead. And she didn't see this situation as her fault for not properly managing her funds, but rather as the bank setting up practices that don't work well for those living with tight finances. And she tells us, I have enough experience, but having financial knowledge doesn't equate to having finances. So it doesn't matter how much financial education and knowledge you have, if you don't have freaking money, then you can't do anything with the knowledge. So ironically, Stephanie saw that the financial knowledge that she gained from her experience with the bank as helping her more to manage money outside of the bank itself. And where she can use the services and products she likes, like the PayPal or the reloadable debit cards, um, in those ways, she feels she's in control. And so <laughs> Stephanie went on to tell us about um, some of her other experience where she tells us, I transitioned to a Chime account, and it works a lot better because you don't get any unnecessary or unexpected bank fees. I've been using it for about, I'd say, a good five months. It's very convenient. It's helpful. You don't expect fees. They give you a $20 overage every month. If you need to, they don't charge you for it. You just repay it when you get your next deposit. It's convenient. So yes, it's easy to send. If you need to transfer something, if you need to pay a bill, I've never had any issues with that accounts. So in this way, Stephanie sees these FinTech services as meeting her needs and offering her benefits versus surprising her with fees um, as she so experienced with the banks previously. So when it comes to FinTech, we saw that mothers most commonly reported using cash transfer apps, um, but some also used uh, FinTech applications to manage bills or build their credits. And even though many of the mothers did report at some point having trouble maintaining consistent cell phone service, um, many really did still rely on the array of apps that their phones um, had um, as part of their financial management uh, systems. And when we compared mothers use of like their prepaid cards and FinTech options by their banking status, we really saw that these services and products were used by mothers regardless of whether they were banked. Um, So it's really not so much in lieu of traditional banking products at this point, but um, mothers seeing their use in addition to having these uh, traditional banking services too. But the types of services and products available to moms weren't the only thing that shaped their, um, their financial management. And so that's where you see the, the role of employers playing a major part. So Sasha is another mother that we spoke to. And at one point, Sasha had been working at a big box store. And she tells us, they gave us paper checks. So we just had to cash them in the store up there, you know, like in the front of the store and they charge like $10 if I'm not mistaken. It depends on how much money you have to get out depending on that. So without a bank account, Sasha is paying her employer to access her own paycheck. We heard from another mother, Simone. um, She explained that she did mobile deposit when she could but often money was too tight to wait for the check to clear. And so in those instances, she would cash her check and then pay a fee at a local store like a Walgreens to have the money put on a prepaid card that she could immediately access the funds on. And so she tells us whenever I have the patience to wait for the money to be processed into my account, then I do mobile deposit. Because when I do it that way, sometimes it takes four or five days to clear the check and know my account. But like whenever I know I need access to the money right away, I'll just, you know, cash it and then have them load it onto my card once it's already cashed. So the alternative, she said, would be to avoid the fee by cashing the check. But she also tells us, I hate carrying cash. Too much is going on nowadays to walk around with a purse full of cash. So for her own safety and her own peace of mind, um, she paid the fees to work around her lack of access to a directly deposited paycheck. So you can see kind of the ways that employers set up their their payments um, really does impact how mothers are able to access their own money whether they're paying a cost for accessing their own paychecks. Um, we hear from other mothers who've worked at stores that have payment systems that cost in other ways. For example, they might offer um, the paychecks to be put onto a card. Um, and in these ways, um, we heard from mothers that they can charge a fee for when those uh, prepaid cards are used outside of their employer stores. Um, so in essence, there's an additional cost to being able to access their own paychecks. It was very much not <laughs> not the norm, but we did hear exceptions um, to the rule that um, some employer practices did support um, mothers in a positive way to be able to access funds. So again, that would be the exception versus the rule in terms of how um, payment pro- or paycheck processes, payroll processes, tend to to impact the financial lives of these mothers. And then lastly, we talked to moms and heard about the modalities that they use to pay their bills. So we heard about how they access the money coming in, but also how do they then pay money out to cover their expenses? And there were a number of different factors that influenced how mothers thought about, um, about their bills, managed them, and some of them, were around their own preferences, um, like things that were most convenient or those that kept them safest. Um, Others, they didn't have a choice, and it was um, based on how they had to pay bills. So here we hear from Victoria um, about how she manages this, and so she tells us that I usually pull the money off of my debit card and then for my like electricity bill, I go to like a pay station and I'll give them the money and then they'll pay the bill. And then for my rent, I'll pull the money off the card and file a money order and then that's how I pay my rent. So I pretty much pay everything basically with cash except for my phone bill and my internet, I pay with my card. So we see here that Victoria is using a number of different modalities um, to be able to, to cover her bills in different ways. And we hear from mothers um, that they're thinking about this in a lot of different ways, but they're very intentional uh, about how they're paying these bills. Others cited um, things around distrust of others or peace of mind, things like the timing um, for accessing money and when funds show up also um, drove how bills were paid Again, safety um, and not carrying cash came um, up for some mothers. And again, the accepted payment methods. And then also we hear mothers are very um, thoughtful about minimizing the fees that are associated with these different modalities. So, for example, Angelina um, and her partner were relying on his unemployment insurance payments to cover their bills. And since it costs money to make withdrawals from the state issued card connected to his UI payments, they opted to pay their bills directly from the card to avoid these charges. So, we think about all of these different aspects and factors moms are balancing as they're figuring out which are the most convenient, safest, and allowable ways for them to pay their bills. And so across these four different areas around banking systems, FinTech services, products, their employers' policies, as well as the modalities they pay for their bills, we see that there's a fairly complex financial management practices system going on here, um, just to receive income and to pay their bills. And so what that can mean is that it can be taxing to cognitive bandwidth, holding all of these pieces just around financial um, services takes up space. And thinking that on top of everything else that um, moms and parents manage in their lives that aren't specific to finances, that can really you know, um, take a lot of the cognitive bandwidth that they have. It also leaves room for potentially costly errors when they have these delicate systems set up And these mothers know exactly how much money it will take, when they need to do these things. But if one piece falls out of place, the whole domino effect can happen. And it can have um, more consequences that are pretty costly in terms of managing all of those bills and keeping up with everything. And then we also hear (laughs) through the narratives of moms that there isn't necessarily a desire for being traditionally banked. We don't hear that expressed in their narratives. Um, and according to their narratives, these fintech products appear to be taking the lead in meeting some of their needs and preferences.
0: Are there any specific policy implications or practitioner implications you think stem from this research? or are there other things you think that are important uh, to keep in mind as as we think about how this research, can be used in building a future for folks who are in certain situations like this?
1: The the desire or the um, preference for being banked or not um, really speaks to how do we think about financial inclusion um, and what are our goals in expanding financial inclusion? Um, what does that look like? So I think that's one question to really consider and how these findings might inform our answers to that. In general, I think a a press, both practice and policy, um, some themes stood out. Um, One of those being understanding points of mistrust and whether you're, if you were a practitioner working with um, families around finances or thinking about how to structure policies, understanding where this mistrust comes from, what are the issues um, that we're hearing? Like for a lot of moms, we hear from um, their mistrust happening Um, with banks because of kind of that gotcha or those surprise fees, whereas other services, including fintech services and products, they may have a fee, but it's upfront and it doesn't feel like it was more of a a gotcha feeling or an after an unfair practice, you know, um, so that transparency on the front end was big for mothers. So understanding those components around mistrust um. Also, acknowledging again those demands on cognitive bandwidth. You know, we as humans, we only have so much that we can manage. Um, and so, when when more space is taken for you know figuring out all of those different modalities and when and how much, um, you know, you asked at the beginning about some of those financial aha moments and you know, automation for me that has changed. Um, how I approach things, but that clearly isn't always an option and the, the options that are set out for moms, they're, they're not always the greatest. Um, so they're making decisions best on the, based on the options available to them. And so how do we create the best options for these moms? So they have the, the choice and the flexibility um, to do what makes most sense for their families um, and allows them that, that best approach um, for their own finances and how they want to approach these things. In terms of where where we're at with um, with policies, um, it feels a little bit, in terms of, oh, wait and see, um, in terms of these regulatory practices, we've certainly learned of how, you know, banking regulations have evolved over time. Um, so what lessons can we learn there as we start to think about how fintech will evolve and what regulations are there, you know? The we hear about this flexibility and these options that FinTech presents to mothers, um, which are fantastic. Um, The flip side of it is that we, you know, mothers don't necessarily have protections under some of these services and products that they would um, in other circumstances. So where is the, the balance and how do we continue to promote protections under all financial services without losing that choice, the flexibility, the transparency that mothers are looking for, all of these things. Um, so just as, as we continue to see this sector evolve, how are those, um, components looked at and embedded into these, these policies.
0: Thanks again, Jill, for providing all of that information. If our listeners want to find out more about this, this research or other things you have going on, where might they be able to find that information?
1: if folks would like to learn more about these mothers' experiences and particularly around financial services, um, recently um, the article about this research was published in the Journal of Family and Economic Issues, an article called I Don't Like All Those Fees: Pragmatism About Financial Services Among Low-Income Parents.
0: Please follow our podcast on your podcast app to remain updated on the latest work from the UW-Madison Retirement and Disability Research Center. You can also visit our center on the web at cfsrdrc.wisc.edu. There, you'll find our latest news, publications, and webinars. Until our next episode, let's all keep doing our best to support equity and financial security.